If you could grab a seat, um, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, If you do not have a Bible um, or you don't have an ESV Bible, um, we have them on the back table um, and that's the translation we use. You're welcome to, excuse me, grab one from there. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take it, excuse me, sorry, you're welcome to take it home. Um, It's yours. It's a gift from our church. The best thing we could give you is the Bible. We are in the middle of a series called We Are, and we've been looking at a number of things that um, I believe that I want us to stay in. Uh, We already have them as a church. This is who we are, but I want us to take note of them and pay attention to them and then grow in them, and may they always be a part of um, what we're doing. We've looked at, we are a grace-filled church. We're a gifted church. We have this Holy Spirit giving us gifts. We've looked at, we're a generous church, um, and Last week, we looked at, uh, we are a prayerful church, and I exhorted us to be uh, dependent, devoted, and hungry prayers, asking for more of God, seeing our need and, and responding with that cry that Moses had, show me your glory, give me more. And uh, I, I believe the Lord has answered that prayer, particularly in my own life, even just this morning as I was preparing um, uh, yeah, overwhelmed by God this morning and not sure how I will go today. I did not go very well during the singing. Um, I was a mess and so if I start to become a mess, you can pray for me um, because I have been yeah M- moved by It's not starting well, is it? Uh, the holiness of God, my own unholiness, our unholiness, my family's unholiness, and then the overwhelming love of God to meet and breach the gap. And let's let the word speak. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 19. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let us pray. Lord, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, O Lord. Amen. 
when you go to the gym or sign up to an f- online fitness program um, and you have some kind of interview where you interact with staff or a bot, uh, they will ask you the question, uh, what are your goals for joining the gym or joining the fitness program? What are you trying to achieve? Um, if you join the Chris Hemsworth fitness app called Center, it gives you three options. Um, you know, I want to lose that extra last bit of fat. That's one of the options. Uh, one of the options is I want to grow in um, muscle strength, and the other one I can't actually remember, but those, those are two. I want to grow in muscle strength, and, and basically I want to get ripped, and the other one is I just want to be a little bit less fat. Uh, and, and if you meet a PT, that's the first thing. If you have a session, they'll ask you, what are you hoping to achieve? Uh, and for many of us, when it comes to going to the gym, um, you might have uh, different ideas about what you want to achieve. But for, for a lot of people, um, perhaps myself, uh, the, the, the grandness of my aim or our aims can be simply just, I want to be just a little bit less fat. Or I want to be a little bit more fit. Uh, maybe some of us are a bit more aspirational. We kind of have this ideal picture, but we don't often uh, really actually set ourselves to be like, I want to look like Chris Hemsworth. We don't, it, that wasn't an option. Even though it's the implied message of the center app, it wasn't like, I want to become and have uh, Chris Hemsworth. That's my goal. Instead, we often set our targets much more achievably and lower to something more manageable and realistic. What about when it comes to the Christian life? In particular, your pursuit of godliness. When you set out and you think, I want to become more godly, what's your goal in that? Is your goal to become a little bit less sinful? which is great. That's a great goal. Is your goal to become a little bit more righteous? Good. Fantastic. Praise the Lord. It ought to be. But that's not God's goal for us as individuals. And that's not God's ultimate goal for us as a church. God sets the standard and the goal And the standard and goal that he sets, that we should be seeking to attain, putting our energy toward, changing our entire life around in the life of our church, is holiness. And not just mere holiness as defined by Sovereign Grace churches, holiness as defined by the Lord who is holy. What's your goal? Do you want to become holy like the Lord is holy? Perhaps you might think, ah, oh, you know, like, aren't we saved by grace? This sounds a lot like a high standard. Isn't this a bit like legalism? Like trying to become holy in everything we do, in all of our conduct, in our speech, in our money, in our life, in our conversations, in our heart. Isn't that just legalism and rules? Isn't that kind of just what we were saved from? Aren't we saved into the freedom of grace? Won't a pursuit of holiness, won't the pursuit of holiness of God, that standard, lead to earning our way to heaven? a constant cycle of condemnation. 
Well, perhaps you might think, oh, man, you know, pursuing that level of holiness, won't that lead to self-righteousness? If I become more and more holy, holier than anyone in this church, won't I then become puffed up and proud? Won't I then become, oh, look at me. <laughs> yes, I haven't eaten in six years. I'm still <laughs> fasting. Um, or perhaps you get the fears of, no, 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 if we become holy, we will no longer be relevant to the world. We will no longer be able to be on mission. We will no longer be an inviting place to bring people to. We will turn people away with our holiness. Therefore, we can't pursue it too hard because what about mission? If someone was describing you and they said, they are holy, would you take that as a compliment or as maybe a slight dig on who you are? It's a bit of a telltale sign that perhaps the highest standard and goal of the Christian life, that of being holy, can be seen as a slur. Obviously, Ned Flanders doesn't help, and this kind of self-righteous, holier-than-thou, and especially the hypocrisy we've seen of late of major church pastors who have put themselves out there and have been far from holy, makes us think, oh man, this is not even something that I should aim for. But that would be a grave mistake and a fatal error. Whether you're a believer or not yet a believer, our goal is not to be a little bit less sinful or even greatly less sinful. That's a, a negative way of approaching it. Our goal is to be holy. Holy. We are called individually and corporately to a radical pursuit of holiness. Ephesians 1.4 locates this goal as combined with God's intent in saving us. Ephesians 1.4 says, even as he chose us, in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So it's not based on our relative amount of holiness. That's why God chooses us. He chose us before we were born. For what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And so, one overarching goal for our church that I want us to take up is the intentional and radical pursuit of holiness. The intentional and radical pursuit of personal and corporate holiness. The writer to the Hebrews says it like this in chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and... For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive, pursue holiness. Without it, we will not be with God face to face. That's what the scriptures say. Three points for us today to explore this heavy theme. Number one, the pursuit of holiness. Number two, the practice of holiness. 
And number three, the opportunity of holiness. And my main hope is that at the end, we would adopt, click that goal. I want to be, I want us to be, I want my family to be holy. And that we would pursue it. Not just in word, but in deed. Point number one, the pursuit of holiness. Let us turn to 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, it is vital that before we get into the guts of what we are saying and and this high calling, um, that we make this distinction that the Bible always makes, that before we go on to do things for the Lord, we are doing doing it out of what's already been done. And verses 1 through 12 of 1 Peter, um, the apostle is speaking to these churches in this dispersed area in Turkey and calling them and telling them what has already been done to them. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, this is what he's done. He has caused us to be born again. So this call to holiness is for people who have been born again. Um, uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So before Peter moves on to tell them what to do, he wants them to know you are born again, You have your future secure in Christ, and God's power is guarding you in the present. They're the realities we walk in with today. But he's not done there. It's not merely saved. Saved to be sanctified. Saved to be holy. Verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter's main point in this section is to tell us that we are all called out from our sin and called out to be and pursue holiness. We are called out from our previous life to live an incredibly new life, a holy life. And this is every Christian's calling. This is not just for the elite or the pastors or those who are like, you know, serious about Christianity. This is for everyone. He's writing to the churches spread across all of Turkey. There's no like, well, you know, if you don't really want to be holy, it's okay. Jerry Bridges, in his great book, The Pursuit of Holiness, says this. God has called every Christian to a holy life. There are no exceptions to this call. It is not a call only to pastors, missionaries, and a few dedicated Sunday school teachers. Listen, every Christian 
of every nation, whether rich or poor, learned or unlearned, influential or totally unknown, is called to be holy. The Christian plumber and the Christian banker, the unsung homemaker and the powerful head of state are all alike called to be holy. But what is holiness? To be honest, I'm not even sure I really understood it until this week. Or at least understood it in a way that my soul apprehended it. I increasingly this week became convicted, undone, trembling. I think I'd lost sight of the absolute holiness of God and my unholiness in comparison to him. I'd become accustomed to low thoughts of God and low expectations of man and myself. But the Lord's been setting me up for this, to change, because he's had me reading through Leviticus this month. And the book of Leviticus is all about holiness. If, if you're doing a daily Bible reading plan and, you, and you're, you're in nearly the end of February, you've read Leviticus this year, right? You know what it's like. Everything is holy. Yeah. Everything needs to be holy. Once something becomes holy, you can't touch it. You can't defile it. Uh, the, the, the punishment is death. Uh, the punishment is ruin and destruction. God breaks out in fire upon Adab and Nahi, uh, Nabi, whatever his name is, Adab and Nabayu, when they try and start their own fire rather than going through God's way. Holiness is not a thing to be trifled with. But the reality is, is that we come up with our own cultural definitions, even our church cultural definitions and standards. Again, Jerry Bridges says this, Many Christians have what we might call a cultural holiness. They adapt to the character and pattern, uh, the character and behavior pattern of Christians around them, which is good, at least. As the Christian culture around them is more or less holy, so these Christians are more or less holy. But God has not called us to be like those around us. Ultimately, he has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God. Yes, our fellowship helps us to grow in our holiness, can awaken us to areas of sin when we see holiness in other people's lives and can stir one another onto holiness. But the ultimate standard of holiness is the Lord himself. And scripturally defined, holiness is primarily the otherness of God, the separateness of God, the fact that he is distinct from creation, that he is other, majestic, glorious, transcendent in being, that he is a cut above and completely different from all that we are eternal, unchangeable, righteous and perfect, untempted and untainted by evil. He is holy. That's who he is. It's not just an attribute of God. It is who God is. He is holy in his love, holy in his justice, holy in his mercy, holy in his planning. He's holy. That's who he is. 
and in included within the otherness, the, the, the separateness, the, the set-apartness of God is this commensurate idea that God's holiness is his moral perfection. That God knows what is right and does what is right every single time. We can know what is right if God grants it to us, but how often do we do what is right? God has never done the wrong thing, ever. His very nature is to hate evil and to love righteousness. We see this best in the often referred to scene in Isaiah 6. And I hesitate to go here, for it seems so common, perhaps you've heard it many times before. However, I do believe it will help us. And as I read it this morning, I believe I had, and I can't recreate this experience for you, I will not even try, but I believe I had a harrowing experience of the vision of God and his majestic holiness. So let us read Isaiah 6 and see his holiness in full picture. Isaiah is taken in a vision to see something that he had never, he he grew up with the laws, He, he knew the Bible, but he saw something here that he'd never been able to experience before. Chapter 6, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah, about halfway through your Bible. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, that's a vision, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple is a structure probably four or five times bigger than this space that we're in here. This temple is filled with his gown. He is so immense that the clothes that he wears and his being can fill an entire space. Above him, high throne, stood the seraphim, these these angelic creatures. We don't know a huge amount about them, but they're created. They aren't sinful. They're not fallen. They're created by God. They don't have human bodies. They're spiritual beings. But this is what they, even though they are sinless, this is their response. Each of them had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Even these angelic creatures in the presence of holy God must cover their face. They've never tasted sin like you or I. Never. Yet they have to cover their face. And they have to cover their feet like Moses when he approached the burning bush and had to take off his sandals because the land which he was on became holy ground. Not because it was holy, but because it became holy because God was there. They have to cover their feet. And they they fly and they call to one another. They can't help but sing out. And this is what they cry out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Hebrew literature, they didn't have exclamation marks or underlines. They had repetition as their primary way of emphasizing a point. And the only time God is referred to three, a character, an attribute of God is referred to three times is his holiness. 1 John 4 says that God is love. 
But Isaiah 6 says that God is holy, holy, holy. It's it's like an exponential uh, equation. It, it, It doesn't have an end. It doesn't have a limit. It doesn't, you can't exhaust the the concept of God's holiness, his transcendence, his glory, his magnitude, his perfections. He is holy, holy, holy. The temple rightly responds to this revelation of God. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And look now how Isaiah responds. The really only appropriate response to an awareness of the holiness of God. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, I think he's, he's probably... He's probably prostrate on the ground. He, he, I, don't, I don't know if he's looking at this point, but once he sees the holiness of God and, and knows his sinfulness and his, his unholiness, he, he is ruined. He, he can't... Uh, it, it, woe is an incredibly strong term. It's basically to call curses upon yourself. It's like in Revelation and in Matthew when the unsaved people and the Lord is coming back, they cry out, mountains fall upon us and hide us. In the presence of God, our sin produces this level of uh, a curse upon ourselves for our unholiness. John Calvin says, Man are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Insignificance, more than that, unworthiness. R.C. Sproul in his excellent book, The Holiness of God, classic book that you should read, says this. If there ever was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah. Then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. In that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortal creatures, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Have you ever had this experience? 
this moment of realization, the gut-wrenching agony, knowing that before God, you are ruined, undone, exposed, helpless. That's what Isaiah is experiencing. That's what it's like to experience true holiness, to see a picture of true holiness. If you've never had that experience, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but if you're brave, I pray for it. His majesty and his perfections floor us. You can't be you, you can't be arrogant or self-righteous and holy. There's, if you are, you aren't. If you are arrogant or self-righteous, if you have any high thought of yourself, you, you have not encountered this God, you are not in his presence, you are deluded. I am deluded. Woe is me. That's the response. That's why all through the Old Testament, you see God thundering and and mountains shaking. You see the earth opening and swallowing people alive. You see serpents attacking the people of God, for they are unholy. They are inflaming God against themselves by their actions. He is not to be trifled with. He hates sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And he does. He sees our wrong, but he hates it. He hates it. And he hates it. And he loves righteousness. His very being rejoices at that which is good and true and, and beautiful. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is the imagery he's bringing. This is the the narrative of the Bible he's bringing to the new Christians spread across Turkey who are from various backgrounds, who do not know of the holiness of God necessarily. This is what he's saying. Be distinct. Be morally pure in thought, word, and deed. Be separate. Stand out. Have no darkness living within you or amongst you. Hate sin. Love righteousness. Be conformed to God's very character and especially that scene in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself God personified and holy. And just in case we are tempted to relegate this to Sundays or to quiet times, Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. And he's not speaking to monks. He's not speaking to people that live in monasteries. He's speaking to persecuted Christians who live in the Roman Empire, who will not bow the knee to Caesar, and therefore, as a result, are hated 
but still have to go on living in the world. And he says, and he's not being unrealistic, be holy. Amongst these pagan cults that have orgies and um, worship and sacrifice and have no ethical standard for truth and beauty and goodness and uh, lie, cheat and steal, get themselves ahead, be holy. Are you, am I, pursuing holiness like we are called to? Not just less sinfulness, slightly more righteousness, but holiness. How serious an aim is it really for us as a church? Do we really expect one another to be holy? Do I expect myself to be holy? Are we aiming for less fat? <laughs> well, Chris Hemsworth, okay. May we be a church marked by the radical and intentional pursuit of holiness. Press that button. I will pursue holiness. How do we go about becoming holy? Point number two, the practice of holiness. It's already very late. Read your starting point notes. That was point number two. <laughs> Very briefly, let me say this. That the same pattern is throughout all Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament, three steps. Put off your old self, verse 14, your former ignorance. Put on the new self, that is, be holy. And the middle step must not be skipped, renew your mind. Which is why in verse 13, Peter says to the Christians, Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope. That's a mind word. The, the, the visual picture is uh, people walk like full-body gowns, like what Joe wore to church a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and the idea is grab it and tuck it into your belt so you can run. Don't have any hindrance. So prepare your mind. Press the button. Think, I am aiming for holiness. Okay, and he says, the hope... Do it in hope of the grace that is to come at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't run in, in condemnation or agony or fear in that respect. We run knowing that Christ will come back and make us completely holy in an instant. Yet, all, in the meantime, we are to pursue it, choose it, go after it. How do we do that? Well, he, he says, take off the old self. Verse 17, he says this, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially, According to each one deed, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves how? With fear throughout the time of your exile. We need to renew our minds with an appropriate fear and reverence for God. We do not trifle with the God of Isaiah 6. We do not treat him lightly. We cannot take up sin, walk into the temple, and expect to survive. Conduct yourselves with fear. That's what Peter's saying to these Christians. They are in Christ. They know God. They will be saved. But he's still saying reverential fear. We must have fear of the Lord, for he is holy. 
But then he also says, conduct yourselves with fear. God will judge impartially according to our deeds, so what we do. But as we conduct ourselves with fear, look at verse 18. Knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. We are to conduct ourselves with fear, knowing that God judges impartially, and we're to conduct ourselves with fear of dishonoring our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shared His very own and precious blood to make us holy. We are to be fearful of dishonoring the one we love. We're to be fearful of touching and and thinking and saying and doing things that would cause us to disrespect and treat lightly the very precious blood of the Savior that was shed for my sins and your sins. Notice he says it's not just the blood of Christ. It is the precious blood of Christ. And what does it do? It sprinkles us and makes us clean. And so how can we live in sin if the blood of the Son of God was shed so that we could be made at one with him? Conduct yourselves with fear, with reverence of spurning that blood, that precious blood. And in that, in that preciousness, that that word is this sense of apprehending the beauty and joy and splendor of Christ. And that, my friends, I think is one of the greatest ways to grow in holiness, is to apprehend not just the fear of judgment and punishment, but the glory of Jesus, to love him which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We become more holy by beholding more of Jesus Christ, by loving Him more, and the pleasures of sin fade in light of His glory and grace. So, how do we grow in holiness? Verse 13, intentionally pursue it. Verse 17, with fear. Verse 18, with reverence to the blood of Christ. Read your starting point notes. Revisit Ephesians sermons. Point number three. The last thing I want to say is the opportunity of holiness. After Isaiah grounds himself into the ground and cries out, woe is me, the angel of the Lord takes a burning coal from the altar, the purifying altar, and places it on his lips and makes and says, your sins have been paid for. You are atoned. So God comforts Isaiah. In, and God doesn't want us to live in this slavish fear. He wants to comfort us with the precious blood of Christ, with the burning coal. It cleanses us from all sin. Then the Lord says in um, verse, six, uh, verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. If you read on in 1 Peter... He says to them, you are a chosen race. And this is chapter 2, verse 9. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 11, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's the opportunity of holiness. Holiness is not opposed to mission. Holiness is the foundation for mission. Holiness and mission are friends. They go together. Being holy will not hinder your mission. Because of Isaiah being made holy in the presence of a holy God, he was able to be a willing servant. He said, here I am, send me. And he went to Israel. And they didn't listen to him. They hated him. And he preached for year after year, decade after decade, with no one listening. And then eventually they were exiled and he wasn't able to convince the people. His holiness didn't hinder his mission, but you know, our faithfulness in mission doesn't guarantee success. The success is faithfulness. But you cannot be truly successful in mission if you are unholy in the practice of it, which is why Peter says to these Christians in the midst of a pagan culture, keep your conduct honorable. Be holy, even when you are with the most unholy people, even if it makes them hate you, even if it makes them feel judged by you, even if it makes them feel you know, that you are there just trying to make them feel bad all the time. Okay, be holy doesn't mean be arrogant, doesn't mean be self-righteous, doesn't mean be rude, but be holy. You don't have an option. But the promise is, when they go to speak evil against you, because you are so different to them, they hate it, they don't like it, they want to put you down and curse you out, some will see your good deeds and will be a part of that great day when the Lord Jesus is revealed and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and they will glorify God. Some will be saved. Some will be saved. And the opportunity of our holiness as a church is to be on mission. Here I am, send me. And then we go, never compromising, never watering down. Christ never did that. Was he not holy in every breath, in every step, in every conversation, yet the most successful missionary that has ever existed? So friends, do not pit holiness and mission against one another. They go hand in hand. That is the great opportunity to find ways as a church to be distinct, to be a light, to be a city set on a hill. Yes, some will hate it. But the Lord will bring some to us because they see the difference. Now, my friends, all of our growth charts look different. We all have the same goal, holiness. We're all to pursue it. We're all to practice it. We're all to spur one another on in it. But we all have different growth charts. The intensity of our pursuit is not uniform. There will be some who will be convicted by this message and flawed and want to change their entire life, and there'll be some who this will not affect you at all today. That's just the way the Lord works at times. And so we have to have grace for one another, long-suffering and patience and mercy in the process. Because God's aim is to produce oaks of righteousness, not mushrooms. Now, holiness takes a long time. The gap 
is agonizing. But it will not happen today. You will not become holy today. It's not the Lord's will. It's not his ultimate will for you today. It takes time. Isaiah, toward the end of his incredible letter, letters, prophecy says, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And that's my hope for us, that we pursue it and grow and strengthen and, and, and the, the trunk gets stronger and stronger and the limbs get stronger and stronger and the leaves become more and more abundant with fruit bit by bit, day by day, storm by storm, together. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you bridge that gap. Oh, Lord. We thank you that you are holy, that you are not tainted, that you are not lesser, that you don't decrease, but you only get, that you stay the same. You're not tempted by evil, you're pure. And you provide a way. God, I pray for myself and my friends. Lord, I ask that, um, I ask, Lord, that we would pursue it. God, help us to want it. Help us to be it. Help us to shine it amongst others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.